Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest won the Pulitzer Prize for his novel, The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. His new novel may well do the same thing for him if they give encores or knighthoods for a second time in this country. It's, uh, it's called The Yiddish Policeman's Union, and it's set in Sitka, Alaska, the Sitka, Alaska created in the mind of Michael Chabon, who took a research trip there. And when he was checking into the hotel in Sitka, was asked if he was there for business or pleasure. He said a little of both as he went around and completely rebuilt the town in history. It became the Jewish homeland after World War II. <laughs> And a city of some three million people all up and down. Mountains were lowered, uh, islands raised, an entire culture developed, concert halls, symphonies, uh, mansions, slums, and of course a police agency with uh, a detective in it named Meyer Landsman and his partner, a half Klingit, uh, half Jew, uh, who was there. And much of the book is in Yiddish. at least the expressions are, and there is a chess theme in it because Meyer Landsman hates playing chess. There's a chess problem at the scene of the Dead Man uh, hotel room and in the beginning and becomes part of the book. Will you please welcome the author of the Yiddish Policeman's Union, Michael Shabon. How do you do? Are you nice good to see you. Good to see you. How are you? In the... Uh, in the first hour, Josh Waitzkin, a uh, chess player, uh, was talking about Zugzwam, Zugz, which also shows up in your book. The idea where somebody is put in an untenable position, no matter which way they're moved, they're toast. Yeah, you have exactly you have no good moves. No. Uh, and any move that you make will lead directly on the subsequent turn to, to checkmate. But in chess, you can't pass. You have to move, so, yeah. And in a way, that's kind of a metaphor for the plight of the Jewish people in Sitka, because this homeland is going to revert back to the good old USA in just a matter of weeks, and the Jews have to move again. That's right, yeah. It's this process that's called reversion, where this vast, uh, narrow strip of land that was essentially leased to the um, to Jewish refugees from Hitler's Europe uh, during and after World War II um, for a 60-year term in 1948, but now the term is up and it's time for everybody to go. And it's a somewhat analogous, I guess, to what happened with Hong Kong, uh, you know, 10 years ago or whenever that was, and uh, that everyone's sort of scrambling madly to make plans to go somewhere else, whether it's Canada or Australia or wherever they might have a family connection. And some people are going to be permitted to stay, but nobody knows for sure who. And uh, yeah, I guess in a sense, it is a kind of a, a zugzwang. Because the police department's going to be closed. The detective is told that a case that he he wants to solve is going to be filed away. Don't work on it. Yeah, right, exactly. No, his, he, 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 Meyer Lanzmann's having a bad streak. When the book opens, um, he's not doing well. He's drinking too much. He's smoking too much. Um, He is uh, living in relative isolation from all the people who love him. And uh, his career's kind of on the downswing, and he has this big pile of unsolved cases with he and his partner and uh he's quite surprised to arrive um at work 
for work one morning and find that his new supervisor, his old supervisor, has left, has actually found a place to go. You know, Taken off for Australia. Right, to, to Melbourne. And his new supervisor is his ex-wife. Um, <laughs> and she has been given this mandate to, in preparation to, for this reversion, to just clear things out. To, they, they don't want to have any loose ends. And, and any loose ends that are lying around need to be tied up whatever, you know, by any means necessary. And she, she could very tacitly hands down this policy from the department that anyone you can make any of these things stick to, stick it to them. And at some point, the detective's badge no longer serves him in the way it should, so he has to show his business card or his union membership card <laughs> to get information. It's not even a union. It's more pathetic than that. It, he thinks of it as the Yiddish Policeman's Union, but it's really this, it's this mythical uh, international fraternal organization of Jewish policemen. Um, <laughs> that's called the... The Hands of Esau, which is a, a term I borrowed from a wonderful writer named Jerome Charon, who's written a series of novels, a detective novels about a detective named Isaac Seidel. Um, and, and they're set in New York, and, and, and all the Jewish cops in those books all belong to the Hands of Esau. And so I borrowed that, which I just love that idea, because if, you know, if you think, if you remember your, your genesis, Esau was supposed to be really hairy. Um, and and Jake, Jacob had to pretend to be, but had to cover himself in a sheepskin to pass as his brother. So I imagine those hands being really hairy hands. Um, anyway, he, yeah, that's all he's got. Because in classic, you know, private eye or detective novel fashion, he comes up against the brass and they take his badge and his gun away. He, he does a couple of bad things that rather merit his badge being and gun being taken away. And uh, so all he's got left, if he wants to pursue this, investigation that he's been told to let drop is this membership card. You kept a few things from Sitka as, uh, as, as we might know it uh, in, in your book, and, and one of them, uh, you kept the weather, uh, foggy, rainy, damp. You kept the, uh, you know, the, the, the Arctic nights and, and, uh, and summers. You also kept uh, the pie shop at the airport, I mean, at an airport, <laughs> yes. which which plays a pivotal role. It does, yeah, I moved it. Uh, in, there is in Sitka Airport, which is a tiny airport, um, just one building, really, uh, and still the kind of place when you get off the plane, you just you step off the plane onto the tarmac, you go through these doors, and everybody is there to meet the plane right on the other side, just the way it always used to be in airports, um, with reunions and people hugging and everything as soon as you get off the plane. Um, and in this tiny airport, if you sort of wander around to the right, you can't miss seeing hanging from the ceiling this black sign uh, with white letters and an arrow. And all it says on the sign are the three simple letters, pie. And, you know, an invitation like that is one that I certainly couldn't resist. And, uh, and I discovered that there's this, there's this little pie shop there in the Sitka airport, and it's, you know, famous. It's, 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 I got on a plane. I came home from Sitka. I got on a plane with this pie that I was bringing home for my wife and family. And then I got to Seattle, changed planes, got on another flight going from Seattle, coming back here to the Bay Area. And so I was nowhere... In, within the orbit of Alaska at all, I sat down on a plane and this guy gets on next to me and he looks down and he says, is that a Sitka pie? <laughs> <laughs> so I knew I had, at that point, this was recently, I knew I had made the right choice in making this pie shop. Def it's definitely, it's worth one of the kind of um, principal clues that falls into Lanzmann's lap comes through this pie shop. I knew a guy in, in Juneau who wanted to do something for the Juneau airport that the Sitka airport had. And he came up with f fancy uh, 
ice cream cones with Klingit patterns on them. I have no idea how the business is doing, but he wanted he wanted people to stop off in the same way that they made Sitka, uh, uh -huh. uh, you know, that pilots would stop in to go get their. Mm, their I don't know. Pie, it's hard to beat pie. No, I know that that sounds kind of nasty. Actually, I have to say, <laughs> <laughs> were they like aqua and red and? Black? Oh no, they weren't in colors. They were just you know sort of uh, waffly colored. I guess. Uh, but the idea of sort of playing with history, too, I mean, that was something Philip Dick did in, uh, in The Man in the High Castle. You know, if, if the Germans had won, the Japanese had won World War II. And in your book, I mean, there's, a, there's changes in history, and, and, uh, and, and a bomb gets dropped in Berlin in 1946. Right. Well, it all comes about, you know, when you're writing this kind of fiction, it's sometimes called counterfactual um, or alternate history. Um, typically, you, there's one, you, you start by changing one thing, you know, and sometimes it's a really huge thing, like the Germans win the Second World War or uh, uh, the South wins the Civil War. Um, sometimes it's a much smaller thing or somehow a less obvious thing. Uh, I, there was a, a novel written, um, I'm blanking on the title, but where the Black Death never reached Europe. So. I mean, that's in such kind of a big thing, but in a way, there's no one point. Um, I decided to start with this. My starting point was this proposal that was made by the Interior Department of the United States under Harold Ickes uh, in about 1940 to, to create a kind of shelter area in Alaska for Jewish refugees from Europe. And this got to the point of being introduced as a bill in Congress, um, and it was debated in committee and killed in committee. Now. The, the opposition, which was pretty stout, especially in Alaska, among the among the um, white establishment of Alaska, was very strongly opposed to this thing. And they came out very heavy against it and put a lot of effort into it. And the sort of point man for this, or one of the point men, was this guy, Anthony Diamond, who um, was the delegate to Congress from the Alaska Territory. And uh, I just decided that one day he was coming out of Hogate's Seafood Restaurant in Washington, D.C., um, which when I was a kid and for long before that, growing up in the D.C. area, was famous for its rum buns. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, typically people would take some home in a, you know, in a napkin or something after when they were leaving the restaurant, especially my grandmother who liked to pilfer things from restaurants. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and he, he, he drops one of his rum buns, and it falls, rolls into the street, and they're awfully good. So <laughs> he went after it, and a taxi cab uh, hit him and ran him over, and that's it. Then he's not there to sort of galvanize the opposition, and eventually the bill gets voted on and passed. And, and, and this comes, this whole... Rum buns and pie, I mean, they all... Yes, it's, all about, it's all about pastry for me. Yeah. 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 No, and history, really the history of humankind is the history of its pastry. Yeah. Um, so, Whether it's a fried bread with garlic on it? Or? Yeah, well, fry, any, fried anything, yes. Uh -huh. um, yes, yeah, so, and there's donuts in the book, too, Filipino-style Chinese donuts, um, which I thought I had invented. I thought it was an entirely new and fictitious form of donut, but I've been told there's this delicious thing called a bisho bisho that is a popular Manila snack, and it's a Filipino-style donut, so... I don't know, maybe it came into being once I wrote about it. But um, when you make, you know, that one change then caused a sequence of changes so that because ultimately a couple of million refugees are permitted to enter the United States, then um, the United States government feels that it has done right by those people. And when the time comes to uh, 1948, when the state of Israel declares its independence and its existence, the United States looks at it and says, look, you know, we did what we could. Um, you people are on your own. And because they're on their own, 
um, that state fails. Israel doesn't come into being, and 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 a number of other changes result as a result because of this rumba. And one of them is that Germany almost defe Germany defeats the Soviet Union and has to finally be dispatched with an atomic bomb being dropped on Berlin. So, so you reimagine the world, and in this place in Sitka, people speak Yiddish, and there's a great deal of Yiddish in the book, and and in a way that. You sort of go to a foreign movie and, and you read the subtitles and you come out thinking you're you're fluent in in uh, Esperanto or something. You know, I I somehow end up thinking I'm fluent in Yiddish after having read this, but I don't think that I am really. <laughs> no, I don't think I am either. So, um, but but I was curious that there are a couple of metaphors you use in in the book that that are <laughs> I haven't finished that are ecumenical. Yes. Oh, I see. So, so, so many of the, the metaphors are, are, I mean, you know, like the, the sound of something was like onions rolling around in a boiling pot or, a, but, but there, were, there were two that, that stuck out. One was like tinsel on a bare tree, which struck me as sort of a Christmas mm -hmm. metaphor. And the other you had about the wheel of karma, which was Buddhist in the midst of this sort of very otherwise sort of Yiddish book. I should have cut those out. They don't, <laughs> they, they don't fit at all. No. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I did try, I, 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 I try to be so deeply in the point of view of my main character, Meyer Lanzmann, that, that even though he's not telling his story, it is a narrator telling a third person uh, narrative of Meyer Lanzmann. Still, I wanted it to feel filtered through, if not his consciousness, then the consciousness of someone who's so, immen so immersed in his world that a lot of the context for the metaphors and so on would be would be, um, you know, like I think there's an image of some cypress trees, or not cypress trees, whatever kind of trees they are. Some trees are together in a, in a cemetery and they're huddling together like Hasids praying and they're swaying in the breeze. So, I mean, there is that certain, there is that strong context there, but... Uh, well, even the, even the vocal patterns of all the characters, I mean, you can just hear, I mean, they've got a Yiddish-English quality. Right, it's, it's Yinglish. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I just, I really wanted, the way I tried to do this was that it was being written in Yiddish. And then simultaneously, as at the United Nations, you know, being translated into English. Um, and I was trying to both first hear it in Yiddish, you know, such as I can, which is, I don't really speak Yiddish. So it's just my own memories of growing up hearing the language spoken as a child. And, and I felt I had its cadence, at least in my ear. And maybe that's all I'm really talking about, was hearing the cadences of it with a, a kind of Yiddish lilt or whatever you want to call it, and then trying to quickly grab that and put it into English. But, and, and hopefully the English that results has, a, has this flavor of Yiddish. Even though, you know, it's not like Clockwork Orange, some people have compared it to that, or, or, or Ridley Walker, the wonderful Russell Hoban novel. It's not written in some almost impenetrable mm -hmm. dialect that you need a dictionary for. It's, it's English, it just has a Yiddish, um, you know, geschmack. Yeah, <laughs> precise. What is, what, what is a, a, a Stok, as, as, as like a little kid, S-H-Schatz, oh, Schatz, I didn't know. Schatz, yeah, yeah, you know them. Yeah. You have, you have some. Yeah, that's Schatz. <laughs> yeah, on Father's Day, it's only appropriate to, yeah. to mention. Yeah, no, a Schatz is like a, like a, a little devil, a little, you know, a little demon, a bad child. But, it, but, it's, but it's said, it can be used pejoratively and affectionately. And, and, and sometimes both at once. 
that's something about Yiddish. I mean, that it's got that sort of ambivalence. You know, it's, it's both a, a, a blessing and, a, and an epithet at the same time. Right. Absolutely. I mean, ambivalence is exactly right. And every, I feel, I think everything in this book is ultimately ambivalent. I mean, I don't, whether it's better to live in a world with an Israel or without an Israel, whether it's better to be, to have had Yiddish preserved in this way or, or not, I don't make any kind of determinations. I'm not like, I'm not trying to make an argument. I'm just, I'm presenting a world that is just so steeped in ambivalence that, you know, the character, the main character, Myron Lanzman, ultimately just, he feels simultaneously everything at once. It's the opposite. He feels everything and it's opposite at the same time. Well, and part of that is working with his ex-wife. Yes. Right. <laughs> you know. An inevitable product of yeah. that, no doubt, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the, uh, the other, uh, there was, uh, you also have got a great sense of the sort of the smells. I mean, there are smells throughout this book. It, it feels constantly like being in a, a kitchen of some extraordinary kind. I mean, there's a, you, you, you talk about going into a, a nightclub that only musicians inhabit, you know, for drinking. And, and I think one of the things that it smelled like old, you know, often passed or often handled $1 bills. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that... I mean, there's, there's just things, I mean, you've, you've got aromas in there, you've got scents, you've got mildewing sofas in one place is mingling with the scents of pines. And mm-hmm. I mean, smell is a big part of the book. I, well, I think it's pr- a big part of um, all my books, actually. And I just have a pretty strong olfactory memory. Um, and I, you know, I, I think of things in terms of smells and smells remind me of things. And, um, uh, I think that just works. It's, I've actually had people complain about that and okay. cr- cr- criticize the writing for having too much smell going on in it. Um, and, and, you know, people will say, um, or sometimes I might try to make, I'll make a, you know, like something smells like um, uh, 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 an old horsehide sofa rolled in warthog dung and set on fire. You know, something like that. And somebody will say, like, how do you know what an old sofa... <laughs> rolled in warthog dung and set on fire it would smell like and I think like don't you I mean <laughs> what is a boundary maven a boundary maven is a is a um, very important um, uh, job in the Jewish community um, uh, uh, but only in the fictional Jewish community of my novel um, <laughs> Uh, there is this actual very important um, element of, of, of ritual observance if you're an Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox Jew, which is that um, you are, there's an absolute prohibition uh, against carrying on Sabbath. So on, from Friday night to Saturday night, you are not allowed to carry. And that means you can't have anything in your pockets. It means you can't walk your dog. Once you leave your house, you are not allowed to carry. Um, you can't push a stroller. Um, so... To try to, you know, I guess a a, a truly observant Jew might object to this term, but to circumvent that prohibition, um, Jews have evolved, observant Jews have evolved this very elaborate system of of essentially by saying that they designate wall, imaginary walls and imaginary doorways. They use telephone wires, for example, as lintels and the telephone poles as doorposts. And they say, okay, the space between those two poles is a doorway and everything on that side going this way is a wall and everything going that way is a wall. And if you're within that wall and that doorway, you are home, you are in your house and therefore you can carry 
Um, and it's very important to keep track of those. And if, if God forbid, one of those wires falls down or they use, they incorporate nat some natural barriers, they incorporate some walls and structures, other kinds of structures. <laughs> if one of those things breaks or falls down or gets ruined or gets moved, the whole thing is violated. The sacred space is no longer sacred. And it's very important to keep track of those make sh and make sure they're maintained, that all those those lines and doors are maintained. Um, it's really up to the congregants generally or the, and committees who do it and the rabbis who make the rulings on just where the, and they keep maps and they make plans and charts. And it just occurred to me that it was a good gig for somebody if you could sort of get yourself the monopoly on that. And if you were the guy who had all the maps and you knew where all the, and in return for being granted this monopoly, you guaranteed that your crews and your workmen and your maps would always be updated and accurate and you would constantly maintain them, you could be, you could make a pretty good living for yourself. And that's what the boundary maven has done in my novel, is he's kind of set himself up as the, the maven. He's the expert. He's the man to go to. If you want to know, can I walk from you know this street to that street to that corner and, and, ha and can I walk my dog over there on Sabbath? You know, he'll look at his maps and charts and make a ruling and say, no, you're, you're not okay over there. You got to stay on that side of but it may also know where the hidden tunnels are too well that's the thing and because of that then he has this sort of you know he's the man he's at the spider at the center of this enormous web of of wires and lines and cables and and uh, so he whether he kind of encourages his own reputation for being the man who knows everything in the in the entire district of Sitka you know he has these guys who are always climbing up telephone poles and who knows what windows they can look into from up there and and uh, he has all the gossip and all the uh, rumor and innuendo, it all kind of filters through his maven, the Boundary Maven shop, and so uh, he's the, when he, when our two heroes, Meyer and Berko, the two detectives, they, they need to make inquiries among the ultra-Orthodox community, a very impenetrable, closed society that, who are not overly fond of policemen, um, they go to the Boundary Maven, who himself is not particularly uh, observant, um, to f try to find out what they can find out. It's a great, uh, great character in the book. Thank you. Yeah, he was fun to write. And in fact, it was when that he, I guess he occurs about 70, 80 pages in. And it was when I got to the Boundary Maven, when I, I hadn't planned on having him in there. I know I needed, I knew I needed them to go out and talk to somebody. And I, and I just tried to answer that question. Who are they going to go talk to? And the answer started to come to me. It was like, just out of nowhere, really, this idea of this man at the center of this web of wires. And... Uh, and as soon as I got to that in the Boundary Maven, that, that was the moment when I knew I was, I was really into the world that I was creating, that I had really kind of crossed over some threshold. And it wasn't just a police procedural or a noir story taking place in this made-up city, but I was actually in another world entirely. Great character. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, the book is called The, uh, the Yiddish Policeman's Union uh, by Michael Shabon. Wait before you start that piano. I have, a, I have a question. After, after the, this is, this is uh, in the nature of the, the author's note, where he thanks all the different people, the Yiddish sites, and so on and so forth on the internet. You also say this, this novel was written on Macintosh computers using DevonThink Pro and Nicest Writer Express. And DevonThink Pro is, is kind of a database sorting program. How did you use that in writing the book? Um, <laughs> without getting too technical, it's, just, it's a program that lets you keep... Um, all of your various kinds of materials all in one place. So notes that you write yourself, outlines that you make yourself, but also pages from the internet, pictures, JPEGs, images and stuff. Um, and then you can also use it as a word processor. It has that ability too. So I just create this project 
binder essentially that has all of everything related to a particular project all together in one place, um, and it's all easily accessible. And and then I used Nicest the uh, word processing program to actually prepare the manuscript for publication. Oh, I was curious because I've looked at the program and I've tried to figure out how to use it, and I thought. I'll ask you. You used it. <laughs> no, it's really so much you acknowledge it. It's great. It just like a, ends up being a big digital folder that you can dump all the stuff you tend to accumulate. Uh, anything that's digital, you can just dump it all together in one place instead of having it sort of in various applications that you need. Is, to is it kind of like a boundary maven? Exactly. It's, it is. It's, it's, it knows where everything is connected. Boundary maven. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Michael Shabon. The book is called The Yiddish Policeman's Union. A novel. Sitka with a big, beautiful spire in it from the 77 World's Fair called The Safety Pen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Ed. A great deal in this book. Thank you. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.